Welcome to the Raised with Jesus podcast, 10 minutes every day where the life of Jesus meets yours. In this bonus episode, we're going to talk about the descent of Jesus Christ into hell. And what does that mean? When did it happen? And why? Um, we had a couple questions about that yesterday after our Bob reading based on Mark chapter 16. So as we begin, um, there are two basic foundational concepts that we have to have in mind. Uh, the first is this, and you probably recognize this from the Apostles' Creed. And we talk about it a lot at Christmas and also at the Festival of the Incarnation, which is nine months before Christmas, um, always falls on March 25th. The Apostles' Creed, in the second article or the second part of the Apostles' Creed, uh, reads like this. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And so the first thing that we have to see is that Jesus Christ is from eternity without beginning and without end. He is the second person of the Trinity. Um, we worship a triune God, the only true God. Three persons in one God and one God in three persons. They are not three gods. They are one God. They are absolutely united in their essence, but they are three persons. And that second person of the Trinity, um, the Son, is the one who became human. He took on flesh within the womb of the Virgin Mary, and he retains that humanity for all eternity. So that even right now, um, you can say that Jesus Christ intercedes on our behalf as our high priest, because he is both God and man. And he is fully human, just like you and me in every way, except without sin. He has a human mind, a human will, a human soul, um, and a human body. <laughs> These are all facts and realities. So that's the first point that we have to understand. So the first point is that Jesus Christ is both the eternal son of God, and he is also the son of Mary, um, born in time from the nature of his mother, and also equally um, eternal in, due to the nature of being God. Um, and for an extended discussion of that, you can look at the Athanasian Creed. The second element that we need to understand in order for the descent into hell to make sense is what we call the state of humiliation and the state of exaltation. Um, and that's, that's fairly simple, <laughs> but it's very specific that during his ministry, um, Jesus never lost the ability to, to do miracles. He never gave up any of his divinity, any of his godliness, any of his rights or authority or glory, but he did hide it. He, um, and he did not make full and frequent use of his divine power, his divine glory, his divine honor. He made occasional use of his divine power, glory, and honor. When he did miracles, he walked on water, he raised the dead, that sort of a thing. He made occasional use of his divine power, glory, and honor, but he did not make full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor. We get glimpses of his divine power, glory, and honor in the miracles and on Transfiguration Sunday when he reveals a portion of his divine glory to his disciples there on the Mount of Transfiguration, but for the most part, it remains hidden. It's not that Jesus didn't have divine power, glory, and honor. He just didn't make use of it. That's the very precise <laughs> precise definition that we have to work with, that the state of humiliation is the period of Jesus' life when he did not make full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor. And, um, and we go according to events in his life that period of humiliation, that state of humiliation goes from his incarnation 
all the way up to his death. When we say humiliation, we don't mean he's embarrassed. We just mean that he lowered himself in a sense that he did not make full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor. Pretty simple. The counterpoint to that is his state of exaltation when he again makes full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor. And that exaltation begins with the descent into hell, which happens after he becomes alive again. Um, And so the state of exaltation is when Jesus again makes full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor. He never gave up his power, glory, and honor. He just refrained from using it for a while. And so the shorthand that I sometimes use to describe this is that Jesus basically hid the fact that he was God that if he had showed up with all of his might, all of his glory, all of his honor, um, people wouldn't have been able to stand in his presence. But he hid the fact that he was God. He did not make um, full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor in order that he could be with people for our salvation. And then after he became alive again, then he again makes full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor. Um, And he does so as both God and man, because he is this one person, Jesus Christ, who is 100% God, the the second person of the Trinity. And he is also 100% fully human, fully man. He has a human body, human soul, human mind, human will. Um, He is human in every way, just the same as you or I, except without sin. And so we've got those two things in mind, the state of humiliation, where he hides the fact that he is God by not making full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor, and then his state of exaltation when he again makes full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor. And he, you know, brags about the fact that he is God. He demonstrates that he is God. He uses his power, glory, and honor for the good of his people and to the glory of his name. And that is his right because he is God. And it's not, it's not a bad thing for God to simply declare who he is and what he has done. That's not, you know, if if a human does that, sometimes we say, oh, that's arrogant or that's bragging. But when God does it, um, God is fully deserving of all of that and more. So it sounds like I repeated myself a little bit there and and that's okay (laughs) because this is a topic that we need to talk about more. And you kind of need to have some of that background, some of that terminology in mind in order to talk about things profitably without you know, spending 20 minutes trying to explain the concept. The, the terminology and the words give us a little bit of a handle and a shorthand to be able to talk about these things and, and discuss them together. So then looking at the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Creed divides up very nicely talking about um, the state of Christ's humiliation and the state of his exaltation. Except I've got one beef, I guess, with the uh, the Christian worship hymnal, which came out when I was, I don't know, first, second, third grade, something like that, um, is that they gave the descent into hell its own line, its own sentence. And the descent into hell is the beginning of the events of the state of Christ's exaltation, the beginning of the events where Jesus again makes full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor. The descent into hell is a joyful event. And I think more than most other doctrines, most other teachings, we have to talk about the descent into hell first as what it is not. First of all, Jesus did not descend into hell to release um, Old Testament believers from hell. That is false. That is wrong. Because even Jesus in, in that parable or that story that he tells of the rich man and poor Lazarus, Jesus pictures for us Abraham there in heaven. And, um, 
And we also have Jesus talking with the Sadducees and Jesus refers to Moses at the burning bush and Moses and God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he still is. Um, that's, that's something to keep in mind. First of all, that Jesus did not go down into hell to release Old Testament believers from hell. Sometimes that kind of crops up as an idea and it's wrong. Um, secondly, hell itself is a place created by God for the punishment of those who oppose him. It is not a pre-existing place, right? Um, sometimes, sometimes that idea even creeps in that there are, there's this good place and this bad place, or you know, like the Force in Star Wars, um, a, a good and a bad, a light and a dark. There's a heaven and a hell. No, that is not true. Um, God is the only one who is eternal, without beginning and without end. And after He created the world, God also created, or perhaps during the creation of the world, I don't know exactly when, God created. Um, heaven. Heaven is a spiritual place demonstrating a spiritual reality. And heaven is a place that we will that we will live body and soul after the resurrection. Before the resurrection, if you die before judgment day, then you will just live there in a spiritual state with only your soul. And then at the end of time, your body and soul will be raised, or your, your body will be raised and your body and soul reunited in a glorified manner to inhabit heaven. Hell is also a creation of God, and it is a spiritual state as well as a place. Um, the spiritual state of being shut out from the presence of God and only under the wrath of God. God is present everywhere. <laughs> we recognize this, correct? That God is what we call omnipresent, meaning he is present everywhere. So is God present in hell? Definitely. He, but he is only present there in his wrath and his justice and his holiness. He is not there, present there with his grace and his forgiveness. So hell is the place that God created for the devil and his associates, his demons. And it's also the place where unbelievers end up when they reject Jesus through their unbelief. Um, so heaven and hell are actual places. And that is probably enough background to get us into the major the major portion of God's word that talks about the descent into hell, looking at first Peter chapter three, I'm using the EHV, the evangelical heritage version, uh, through biblegateway.com and, um, first Peter chapter three, beginning in verse seven. And this is one of those sections that is easy to mistranslate. I mean, we, we translate, we put words from one language into another, but the purpose is to put communication from one language into another. And sometimes um, there's a little bit of flexibility in the wording. And so I like the way the EHV handles it here because it also adds some footnotes at the bottom um, for other places to look to kind of back up their, their translation here from 1 Peter 3, beginning of verse 17. Peter writes, Indeed, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, because Christ also suffered once for sins in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in flesh, but was made alive in spirit, in which he also went and made an announcement to the spirits in prison. These spirits disobeyed long ago when God's patience was waiting in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And we'll pause there, because here Peter tells us the who, the where, and the what. Um, the who, that first of all, Jesus was put to death in flesh, but was made alive in spirit. And the helpful footnotes um, from Romans 1 verses 3 and 4 and 1 Timothy 3 verse 16, we have a parallel in Romans and 1 Timothy that when we have this 
these two terms next to each other, Jesus being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, talking about that state of humiliation and the state of exaltation, the state of refraining from the full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor, and again, making full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor. He was put to death in flesh, that is, in this state of humiliation where he doesn't, it, it looks like he's hiding the fact that he's God. He looks like any other normal person being crucified on a cross, but then he was made alive in a glorious fashion. In verse 19, in which he also went and made an announcement to the spirits in prison. And we have the identification of those spirits in prison in verse 20, the unbelievers who who rejected Noah's message while the ark was being built. Um, So that tells us the spirits, that tells us unbelievers, that tells us demons and Satan himself, and it tells us the place that the prison Jesus went to in that state of exaltation, that state of glory, that prison he went to is hell. And so right here, this is this is probably the the best and, and clearest place where we talk about the descent of Jesus into hell. He went and made an announcement to the spirits in prison. Your Bible might say he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And and that's kind of the, the word that is used here. But we typically think of preaching as like pastor preaching from a pulpit for the purpose of repentance and faith for the hearer. But Jesus went and he preached. The content of his preaching is the exact same content that your pastor preaches on Sunday, but the recipients of that message are those who have no chance of repentance, of those who have been confirmed in their wickedness and their unbelief, who have been condemned to an eternity in hell under God's wrath forever. And so the message is the same. The message hasn't changed, but the reaction and the result in those who hear it is simply one of judgment and of woe because they were on the wrong side. They were opposed to God throughout their entire lives, even open rebellion by Satan and the demons. Um, And now Jesus proclaims that he has won. His victory is complete because he has raised himself from the dead. He has already come alive. And so this happens. We see that first of all, Jesus, or you know, third of all, whatever we are at now, that Jesus did not descend into hell to suffer. He suffered while he was on the cross. You remember his words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was suffering the spiritual state of hell, of being deserted by God, having God's loving presence removed, and having to drink the cup of God's wrath, exactly as Jesus prayed about in the Garden Garden of Gethsemane. And then shortly before he died, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, "Um, it is finished, and then, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit that he says it is finished. That was the, the exact same word that, um, that a merchant would stamp or write at the bottom of a receipt that had been paid in full. When Jesus says it is finished, he means the payment for sin has been completed. And he means that the suffering for sin has been completed, that those that's really one in the same concept. And then when he says, uh, father into your hands, I commit my spirit. That's the reminder that when Jesus died, the exact same thing happened to him that will happen to you and me. And that has happened to your loved ones um, who have died in the faith. When a person dies, body and soul separate. The body remains. The soul goes to stand before God in judgment. The soul of the believer is welcomed into heaven. The soul of the unbeliever is condemned to hell. You know, the spirits in prison that we had here in 1 Peter 3 verse 19 when Jesus died, his body and soul separated. And from Friday afternoon until early Sunday morning, his soul was in heaven. 
his body was placed in the tomb and preserved from decay, um, miraculously, according to the Psalms. And then on that third day, his soul and his body were rejoined. His soul came back to his body. And that's what we call the vivification. And vivification, which means to come alive again. And in that vivification, um, you know, I, I just imagine the color returns to his cheeks, the, the heart starts pumping, the blood starts circulating. And, uh, and in my mind's eye, at least, I picture Jesus sitting up and um, pumping his fists saying, yeah, I won. <laughs> Not that there was ever any doubt, of course, but then the very next thing that he does is he descends into hell. Um, as the first announcement of his victory, the, the first ones who would hear that he has raised himself from the dead, that he has been raised from the dead, is the devil, the demons, and all who had rebelled against God thousands of years previously. He descends into hell and proclaims the content that we would recognize as gospel, that Jesus has raised himself from the dead. He is risen. The victory is won and sin has been forgiven. And the trust that has been placed in him is not misplaced. But that message that we recognize as gospel content is heard as the final, the final clang of the prison door, the final thump of God's justice, that there is now no hope whatsoever, that Jesus has won. And for those who are condemned to an eternity in prison, in the place of God's eternal wrath and judgment, in the place of hell, that message of the forgiveness of sins for believers and the victory of Jesus and the resurrection is one that will only cause gnashing of teeth and anger. And I, I guess there is, there is a parallel to that that we should pause and look at briefly. We'll look at this briefly from 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 16. Um, and in these verses, Paul describes his ministry as a victory parade through this world. And, and I'll read that, and then I'll explain some of the background to this, because there's a very specific term that he's using here. Uh, 2 Corinthians um, 2, beginning in verse 14. But thanks be to God, who always causes us to triumph in Christ and reveals the fragrance of his knowledge through us in every place. Yes, we are the fragrance of Christ for God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some we are the odor of death that is the prelude to death. To the others, the fragrance of life that is a prelude to life. And who is qualified for these things? And so the first thing that you see is that Paul compares his ministry and really all of us Christians together um, to a scent, a fragrance, an odor. Um, you are the, the scent of Jesus. And he, his ministry, his task as a minister of the gospel is to spread that odor, that fragrance throughout the world. But there are two reactions um, because verse 15, he spreads that fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Two reactions or two groups, those who believe it and those who reject it. Um, to those who reject it, smell that scent as the odor of death. Those that do not reject it, receive it as the fragrance of life. And I guess the, I, I preached on this for like my third sermon ever. Um, and I compared it to my grandfather's funeral. And after the funeral, you know, all the flowers come home and get divided up among the family. And we had funeral flowers sitting on our kitchen table for probably a good week. And every time I walked through the kitchen, it was just like, oh, that smell. And it's, you know, my, 
my mother thought, hey, you know, these smell beautiful. I love, I love this flower. I love the smell of it. But to me, all it was was the smell of funeral home, the smell of losing my grandfather. One scent with two different reactions. To me, it was the smell of death. Um, to my mother, it was the smell of life and uh, a beautiful fragrance. And that's exactly the comparison that Paul makes here. He says that the gospel message is the fragrance of life and joy to those who believe it. But that same smell, that smell of the victory of Jesus, that smell of the gospel is the stench of death to those who reject it because it is the final judgment on their actions and on their rejection of Jesus. And that's why, by the way, the world and Christianity will never be reconciled. That's why Christianity has been the primary target of all the dictatorships of the 20th century, because, you know, a dictatorship wants to, wants to have your full love and adoration and obedience. And the Christian knows that my full love and adoration and obedience is reserved for my Jesus. Anyway, um, for the Christian, the gospel message is the fragrance of life. For those who have rejected it, for the unbeliever, for Satan himself, the gospel message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the stench of death. And that is the content of the message that Jesus proclaims and announces that, uh, in a sense, he preaches, not for the purpose of converting hearts when he descends into hell, but for the purpose of announcing his victory to the glory of his name. And that is, in a sense, in a nutshell, is where Jesus went. It's why he went to declare his victory. It's when he went, um, after he became alive again, early on Easter Sunday morning. He did not go down there to suffer, but to proclaim his victory after he is alive again. Uh, the content of his message is the exact same content that we share every Easter Sunday and hopefully every Sunday, that um, that Jesus lives the victory is won. <laughs> and and the purpose of his going was not to release people from hell, not to give them a second chance, but to demonstrate to them that the door was finally and officially shut, never to be opened again, that that was the place where they would be living for all eternity in undying death. And so the Apostles' Creed in our hymnal, I'm looking at um, page 41, if you have the Christian worship hymnal, in the service of the word. Um, the second article reads like this. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Period. That is the humiliation from his incarnation all the way through his death. But then the hymnal writers, and probably drawing on, on other precedent, no doubt, but the hymnal writers left the descent into hell balancing out in the middle of space in its own sentence, um, rather than knitting it together with the, the exaltation of Jesus Christ. It should be, he descended into hell, comma, the third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead, because those are all things that Jesus does during his exaltation when he again makes full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor. And so talking about the descent into hell, it's a rejoice, a joyous thing for Christians. And probably the, the easiest um, memory hook that I've got is something that I borrowed from Pastor Tim Smith at St. Paul Lutheran Church in New Ulm, Minnesota. We were driving in the car one time and, uh, and he's just got a fantastic way with words and absolutely, absolutely brilliant Hebrew scholar. Um, but he described this descent into hell as in, in three sounds, ding, and then a Bronx cheer, 
and ta-da. <laughs> so you can imagine, you know, running through this a couple of times with a, a classroom full of seventh and eighth graders, ding, ta-da. Um, because the ding is like Jesus's eyes becoming open again as he, as he is vivified, as he his body and soul are rejoined in the resurrection. Ding, the eyes pop open. And then the very first thing he does is um, goes down, descends into hell and, and demonstrates his glory, his victory in this victory parade through the streets of hell and saying, nah, 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 boo, I won and you didn't. <laughs> and then ta-da, um, after the descent into hell, ta-da, he shows himself to his disciples. And this is the Jesus that we worship, whose victory is so utterly complete that even Satan himself has been completely defanged and defeated, and he has been condemned to hell. And the only thing that Satan could do to, um, to hurt you <laughs> would be to tempt you to give up on this Jesus, to, to make you think that this Jesus is not powerful. But you know what? Satan no himself knows that Jesus is powerful. <laughs> Jesus was right there in prison where Satan is the most notorious prisoner of them all. And Jesus has demonstrated his victory. So dear friends, take comfort in the descent into hell. The first act of Jesus' state of exaltation, his state of exaltation, which continues even today, where he, God and man, continues to use all of his divine power, glory, and honor to his glory and for the good of his church. That's you. Thanks so much for joining us for this special bonus episode with the Raised with Jesus podcast. Check out the show notes for those two references. I'll have a link to Babel Gateway for 1 Peter 3 and 2 Corinthians 2. And if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions, feel free to contact us. Check out the show notes for that as well. God bless your day.